This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 71. So leadership is not leadership. Now think about it. How many people review sessions have you, other HR folks, attended where the following question was used? Yeah, but is she a good leader? But that's a completely wrong question. The good question is, is she a good leading others? If that's the role she's in, is she a good leading leaders? As Steve just referred to, is she a good functional leader? You can't just ask if she's a good leader. And, and, and this is the first thing that differentiates the leadership pipeline thinking that leadership is not just leadership. The job to be done fundamentally changes from role to role. And, and it's more or less a completely new job that you have to start doing when you move up. And not recognizing that is what's causing the trouble in most companies, A, to actually execute the business strategy, but also obviously to develop leaders for succession. How do you build a leadership pipeline? Why is leadership about the jobs to be done and not hierarchy? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guests this week are Steve Drotter and Kent Jonasson, co-founders of the Leadership Pipeline Institute. Steve is the chairman of the Leadership Pipeline Institute and also an expert on succession and leadership development. Over his career, Steve has completed over 50 enterprise-level CEO succession plans, conducted over 1,500 executive assessments, and taught thousands of line managers and human resources leaders in the areas of talent and leadership. Steve is also the co-author of several books, including The Performance Pipeline and the co-author of the international bestseller, The Leadership Pipeline. He's also written The Succession Pipeline and The Succession Planning Handbook for Chief Executives. It goes without saying, but Steve's research and work as a practitioner has had an immense impact on the field of HR and talent and we're grateful for his contributions. Joining Steve and I today in the podcast is Kent Jonasson, who's the CEO of the Leadership Pipeline Institute, where he's responsible for increasing the organization's impact and supporting the delivery of leadership programs for executives across the globe. Now, prior to co-founding the Leadership Pipeline Institute with Steve, Ken was the Deputy Head of Group Human Resources at AP Muller, Maersk an integrated transport and logistics company with over 110,000 employees in 130 countries. It has been 20 years since the classic book, Leadership Pipeline, How to Build a Leadership-Powered Company came out, and it radically changed our understanding of how leaders develop. Now, Steve and Ken have acknowledged a lot has changed in the world since the book was first released, and they've learned a lot working with companies over that time. And that's why Steve and Kent have been working on a big update to the Leadership Pipeline book that's designed to address how to build leaders in the digital age, but also provides a clear roadmap for HR leaders who want to implement their principles. I'm excited to read the Leadership Pipeline, Developing Leaders in the Digital Age, and I know you will be too. It's available for pre-order now, but it'll be out officially February 13th. And if your role has anything to do with building leadership depth and breadth for your company, I highly recommend that you put this on your 2024 reading list. In my conversation with Steve and Kent, we discussed the original research that led to the writing of the Leadership Pipeline book, 
What differentiates the leadership pipeline framework from traditional competency-based leadership models? Why leadership is not about leadership, but rather the specific job that needs to be done? The common traits shared among senior executives who are not chosen for CEO roles? How the leadership pipeline model can be applied in smaller organizations? And the most common mistakes companies make when implementing the leadership pipeline model and much more. Kent, Steve, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you both? Doing great. Good morning, thanks. We're really excited to have both of you on the podcast because not only do you have the Leadership Pipeline Institute, but you are working on updating the Leadership Pipeline, which is a classic in our field. I know you're going to talk a lot about this today. It sounds like 80% of the new book is new. So that is big news for anyone who's a talent HR leader who wants to get more and build more pipelines of leaders in their organization. So we're excited about that. I want to start off and hear more about how Steve and Kent, how you guys formed the Leadership Pipeline Institute. How did this partnership come together? Tell us more about that. I think that's for you, Kent. Sure. Well, I can take the lead anyway. So I had the pleasure of uh, being a deputy head of human resources in a large international logistics company called Musk back in uh, 2004. And from there on, we actually spent four years implementing the leadership uh, pipeline concept. But the thing was that Steve and uh, his co-authors, they were executive consultants, but what we were looking for was we want, we needed to operationalize it so we could get it out in all parts of, of the business. So we had to do that on our own because we could not find a consultancy company, even among the biggest, who really understood the leadership pipeline, where they have read the book, but so had we. But they didn't understand the nuts and bolts behind. But later on in 2008, I then left Merge to set up this, this company here. And there I needed, I needed Steve because I needed to have more than just having read the book. I needed to understand all the nuts and bolts inside this leadership pipeline model. So yes, Steve is the real architect of the concept, and then I have specialized in operationalizing it so that it can reach every leader and every uh, company all out in the front. As far as the Institute, Kent um, did all the work in building the Institute. He's been going around the world signing up training companies and experts, and he's got a hell of a network now that he's built. And I know there's huge interest because they... They looked me up on LinkedIn, and I have to tell them, go talk to Kent. So he, he invited me to come to Denmark and have a meeting. And he wanted to see if I would work with him. And I wanted to see if I wanted to work. A lot of people take things just to make money. When I knew he was way better than that, I said, okay, let's do it. That's yeah. awesome. The book is not about money. It's not about fame. It's, not any, it's about how do you make organizations work better? You know, we get a billion people who go to work every day, and most of them have a shitty manager. I love how you came together and, and Kent obviously saw the brilliance of the leadership pipeline. And I love the initiative you took to say to Steve, hey, let's let's build this out. There's a really, people want this information, but it's not being executed properly. And when you think about growth for a lot of companies, the number one factor that's limiting their growth is having the leaders that actually can execute, right? Having that leadership pipeline and the cost of going external, there's downstream implications for that. And that's why the leadership pipeline is so great. And Steve, in my opinion, The Leadership Pipeline is one of the most impactful books ever published on leadership and how leaders develop. I think it is a, it's truly a Bible that every HR leader and talent leader should read, study, and know. But I'm interested to hear, since I've got you on the podcast, tell us more about the research in the book and, and what was based on and the implications for that research and how it came about. Okay. 
That's a good question. Um, the work started at GE. Uh, when they broke uh, GE uh, into strategic business units, it had been a big pyramid. Every business organized the same way, no matter what they did, making or they decided to make strategic business units. They um, pulled some of us into corporate headquarters to, to reconstruct the talent management port, which had been tightly controlled since GE. You didn't get a good job unless somebody in corporate nominated you for it. So um, I was part of that redesign, that rethink. And one of the things we were challenging, challenged with early was, how do we make better candidate slates? How do you know who can go from being a function leader to being a business leader? And we had those terms already in place. So we did a lot of poking around about that. And then Walt Mahler was our external guru, and he drew the the model. He called it a critical career crossroads. He didn't really get his thinking together for a, a few years afterwards, and he got up to two pages of information about it. So he gave me the model in two pages, and truly after that, I was hired away from GE to put in succession planning and talent management at INA until it happened. So I got to experiment in a whole different environment. Financial services, business really struggling, an enormously wide industry, hard to make a foothold. So the concept worked pretty well. I did the same thing at Chase when I ran HR. I got a chance then to do it around the world. Chase is enormous global presence. I went off on my own and I got hired as a consultant by Citibank to help them with their success. And one of the things I noticed in their, in their structure was that the country managers who run big businesses were working like function managers all over the world. And so they weren't making any money at least nowhere near as much as they should. So when I laid that out in front of the CEO, he said, okay, let's make a program for them. Let's get them all in here and teach them how to be business managers and what the difference is. So I was teaching that at, a, at the general manager course, and Ron was on the faculty. And he saw it, and he got very enthusiastic, and he grabbed me afterwards, and he said, look, Steve, we got to write a book. I said, I don't know how to write a book. He said, I'll show you. And so... We met in a hotel in Philadelphia, and he showed me how to sketch out a book. You know, the, the structure of the chapters, what has to be different in each chapter, how big should it be, and how do you keep an idea? Well, it was very interesting. So we sat down, and I wrote, I wrote 100% of the book. And then Vram uh, uh, made some big changes in some important areas. Uh, so I take credit for only 95 where does all the thinking come from? It started in GE. It was tested in two other major corporations. And then I started to test it around the world. But does this really work? The core idea is there are two people working together and they have to produce something. Somebody has to be in charge. They can't just show up and do what they want. They can't just go up and somebody's going to take charge. Say, so well, take charge of what? Well, it changes based on what we see in businesses. So the structure of the book, the layers, come from what I observed in, in other companies. And the, the discussion about the transitions comes from interviewing about 1,500 candidates for CEO, CFO, CHR, business head, all over the world. It's a four-hour interview. It's not just a how you doing? Tell me about yourself. It's a structure. It takes four hours. Go through their whole career. 
what worked and what didn't. And so I had all this data from, from the interview. That was the substance of the book. What did they tell me? You know, it's not what do I think. It's what did they tell me? What works? And I'm talking to the guys way up, right? So they're the ones that are good. They made it through the layers. What did they do? What's different? So we captured that in the book. I don't think anybody in the world had that kind of data. Because you have to sit out and do all that work. People won't do that anymore. I mean, it's four hours to interview. It's four hours to write it. It's two hours to validate and two hours to give feedback. So it's a full day and a half per interview. That's where the content of the book, the picture comes from Walt Mahler. One of the problems with the picture is quite compelling in itself, right? But it's like looking at a football field. You can't tell what they do there. What goes on inside field is what the book is really about, and people get stuck on the picture. So it's true. I have no, yeah. I have no qualms about the you know, substance of the book. It's the most personal kind of research you can do talking to successful people and going through their career step-by-step. Step. Yeah. Some amazing learnings from that, though. Something that I think would be really interesting to new HR people, the candidates for CEO that don't make it, that don't get selected, usually don't get selected because they never learned how to be a leader of leaders. They never learned to hire leaders, how to train leaders, how to lead, how to build a team of leaders how to get people to stretch and cooperate if, they're, if they have a power position already. So they, they can get up very high just by their technical competence and the force of personality, but you can't put them in the CEO job because it's not a technical job. But right. The ultimate people job is the CEO. Steve, I think it, it's incredible to hear the story and the work that went into the book, and I think that's why it really has really stood the test of time and people still look at this and say, there's so much value here. But Ken, building off of that, the leadership pipeline is a proven framework for building a pipeline of leaders. But talk a little bit more about the framework and maybe add a little more color to what Steve was talking about and how we apply that to that pipeline of leaders. Sure. So the, the, the most critical part and where the leadership pipeline model differentiates itself from everything else out there. And again, Everybody can, of course, decide what they find best, but I, what is really different is you have to envisage the following. In its leadership role, the job to be done is different. So leadership is not leadership. Now think about it. How many people review sessions have you, other HR folks, attended where the following question was used? Yeah, but is she a good leader? But that's a completely wrong question. The good question is, is she a good leading others? If that's the role she's in, is she a good leading leaders? As Steve just referred to, is she a good functional leader? You can't just ask if she's a good leader. And, and, and this is the first thing that differentiates the leadership pipeline, thinking that leadership is not just leadership. The job to be done fundamentally changes from role to role. And, and it's more or less a completely new job that you have to start doing when you move up and not recognizing that is what causing the trouble in most companies, A, to actually execute the business strategy, but also obviously to develop leaders for succession planning. So that's one thing. And where this becomes special is most of what else you will see in the market, that would be competence models, leadership competence models. But remember, competences, they are input. It's not about having competences. It's about whether you are using the competences. And what the leadership pipeline does, it defines what is the job to be done. And it means that what we will now hold you accountable for is not whether you have the competences, 
it's whether you do the job. Now, if you don't do the job, of course, we have to look at, should we help you with some competences? But here's the second part of the, that is critical in the leadership pipeline model thinking. It's not just about competences. It's actually even more about how do you spend your time and what do you need to value to be successful? If we carefully look at the required leadership competences and, for instance, leading others and leading leaders level, most, most average intelligent people, they would be able to learn those competences. They're not difficult. The skills are not difficult to acquire. What is difficult to, to do is make the true transition in, are you valuing leadership work? That's the first one leading others, but leading leaders becomes much more a pure leadership role, and then it just takes off from there. And you don't make that transition in all three areas. That's when you're in trouble. And this is why, why is the leadership pipeline, how, why can it survive so many years as a dominating framework? That's because it, it offers something that traditional competence models, they do not offer. I think that is really so critical, especially how you think about your time, where you focus, what you value. And it sounds easy on paper, let's be honest, right? I think we can all read the book and we're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense that I'm an individual contributor and now I'm a first-time manager. So I've got to not only manage myself, but I got to think about managing others and building timelines, et cetera. But mentally, it's the knowing-doing gap. Many people can't make that switch, right? They're still stuck a level down. And you mentioned, Steve, in your example, working with leaders, they were functional leaders, not enterprise leaders, and that was stopping the growth. So this is why I think it's such a critical topic. But I do want to ask, it's been 20 years or so since the book came out, and you guys have a big update coming out. Why did you decide now is the right time and make this update? And what's going to be different about this version? An awful lot has changed in the last 10 years. I did a brief update of the book in 2010, came out in 2011. It was mostly, what do I learn so far applying this? It's just things at the end of each chapter about application. It wasn't a deep dive. But what we know now is that transition into a digitized, a digitized world changes what leaders do. You have to account for it. It's not going away. And number two, they now realize their power. And they talk about all the demands that people make now. We had all the same demands. We were just afraid to make them in the 60s and 70s. We wanted a better leader more meaningful work, give me a raise, I want better people to work. No one of the same stuff. Just that we were taught to just, just do your job and you and it'll work out. And now it's the opposite. Come in and make demands. So what do you do about that? And all that pressure is down at the bottom because the CEO is not, not dealing with brand new programmers every day. It's a personalized manager who's trying to get them to work on what he wants them to work on. So people don't spend a lot of time thinking about the role of a first line manager or a leader of leaders and all the pressures right there. So we have the opportunity to help them reframe what they're thinking about, to get them to be more flexible, more accommodating to the capabilities of people. But there's one whole stream of thought that has to do with the world's change. Uh, does that mean the pipeline is no good anymore? How do we demonstrate it still works? Because it is first principles, but how do you apply them differently? What changes about your time? What changes about your skill set? The other big slice, and I think it's something for Kent, is all the obstacles you bump into in trying to implement it. Yeah, sure. I'm just a short note on that. 
I think that when we initiated this conversation, I talked about understanding the nuts and bolts below. You, you need that to really harvest the full value of, of, of the pipeline. So I, I think uh, what, uh, what, what, what I've been very uh, focused on uh, being part of the, the third edition here has been how can we even better spell out to everybody how to apply this framework because on the one hand, we run a business, so it's nice when companies call us and say, hey, can you help us? And, and fine, that's how we make money. But at the end of the day, we would like 100,000 companies to use this, and we cannot serve, service 100,000 companies anyway. Uh, so I, I think in the new version here, when the, the HR professionals and talent leadership and so on, when they read this book, it will be easier for them to take it and instantly apply it as one thing. And the other thing is we have come across, we are, we are meeting hundreds and hundreds of HR professionals and some of them say, I don't think this leadership pipeline works. And you can imagine our reaction when somebody says that, what? Uh, what do you mean it doesn't work? But okay, we get curious and say, so what are the one or two things that is not working? But every time we get an answer to that, it's clear for us, but that's because they have interpreted something wrong from the book. But then the concept get blamed, right? Uh, and so that has been an important thing in this book, I believe, that we're spelling it out more for people to get things uh, done the right way so they can truly harvest from the concept and avoid these uh, misinterpretations. That's great. Well, obviously, the world has changed the last 20 years. <clears throat> Frontline managers, leaders have a lot more to deal with. But the reality is work is still work. We still have a job to get done. And so I think the pipeline the model still applies, and it sounds great to be more pragmatic. So that's exciting, Kent, to hear that. But one of the common myths that I've heard around the leadership pipeline is that people say, well, it really just defines this common career path for all leaders. Like, all leaders need to go through this pipeline model. And then why is this a myth? Because I think it is. Well, it, it was never intended to be a, a career path, number one. Number two, if you want to have real learning and, and growth, most people need to take a couple of jobs at various layers. There's taking just one first-line manager isn't enough to be really good. You should take another one, and preferably in some other function. Right? So, you, so you're running a sales team. Okay, go in the factory and run an hourly team. See how that works. Because that, that's where you get pushed into having to really have a philosophy about leading. Do I have the right practices? Because that, that's the only thing that'll transfer. Is if I had good, good human practice, it's not specific to any one company. It's a general statement of principle. It has to be modified. And so what we need companies to do, this is the work Ken does and the work I did for a long time. Is, okay, how do you make your own pipe with your own labels and your own packages of work so your employees can see themselves in all this? So, you know, it's not the answer to anything. It's more like a question. If all these things have to happen, how are you going to run your business? That's really what it's about. We need to understand that there are layers. In order to get all the work done, we're going to have more than one leader in here. And the leadership work is such a huge mountain. We've got to divide it up to get it done. But how you divide it up is up to you. We've never been trying to tell people you have to organize this way. And that's the, one of the first reactions I get is that well, this doesn't look like my company. Well, it's not supposed to. You don't force your company into the pipeline. You take the, the pipeline and integrate it into your company. It's just the opposite of the reflex people have. 
they have it backwards. But first of all, let's take this image, this transition image. Everybody, who, if you ask people, what is the leadership pipeline? Uh, then they would draw this uh, transition image. And then four out of five, they just love that image. So on the one hand, it has been a very powerful way of anchoring the leadership pipeline, this image. On the other hand, it, it, if you only look at the image, then it can easily, in all fairness, be interpreted uh, uh, the wrong way. And another thing is, you know, we walk out to uh, to companies and then some companies say, and they say, yeah, we, we don't really, uh, uh, we, we, we can't implement the leadership pipeline. I say, what do you mean you can't implement the leadership pipeline? You're 2,400 people in your company. You already have one. It's already there. Now, companies, they have a leadership pipeline. It's not something that the book does to a company. What the book does, it helps companies make sense of the pipeline that is already in there. But but you see, it's, it's, it's really how you twist the words here. It's hierarchical. No, it's actually breaking down hierarchies because hierarchy, that's titles. CEO, uh, EVP, SVP, VP, and then you can keep mentioning titans downwards. That's hierarchy. This is role-based. So you will find that if you look at one of our leading leaders programs, I can be a director, uh, an assistant director, and a VP on the same program because they are all three leading leaders. It actually breaks down the hierarchy and get role-focused. And then it becomes agile because most leaders, they don't only have one role. You know, leading leaders may both lead other leaders, but they may also lead three specialists. So now they're both a leading others and a leading leaders. So you can have different roles. And then you have to wear the blue cap in the morning and the yellow cap in the afternoon. So it's role-based and it actually makes it agile and role-based rather than hierarchical. But you see, if people just look at the image, they can love it, but they can also, in all fairness, mis- misinterpret things. And I think that's what we are going to, yeah, also spell out a bit more uh, in, in the new book here to help people uh, rest more in comfort <laughs> with, with, with the model. It was taken too literally. I didn't know that was going to happen. I just thought it was a nice, useful tool here. But to take it literally, you got to think sort of your organization. Where are the turns in your place? And how does that work change when you have those turns? And do people make turns and they tend to grow horizontally. Yeah, well, maybe that's part of the trappings of success a little bit, right? Is that it took off and people thin slice it, see a model and think it's used different ways or sort of apply it to what they think makes the most sense. I've also heard, and I think this is another myth, Kent, that the leadership pipeline only applies to large organizations like we talked about. But this really isn't true that smaller organizations can also apply the framework just as well. Maybe just talk a little bit more about that because may have HR leaders who are working in small organizations and think, well, how do I apply the pipeline? Like, this doesn't make sense. We only have three, four layers. I'll put a couple of words on it, but then I want, uh, Steve, you should get in here because you actually wrote a book, an entire book about how small companies can apply the models. I'm just going to put uh, one, I want to put one thought out in the air here. Think about it. You have a company with 500 people. Let's call that a small company versus the big 20, 30, 70,000 people companies. 500 people. When I'm meeting with a CEO in a company of that size, she would easily say, yeah, but you know, now I'm the CEO. Okay. I said, so three years from now, what will be different in your job? And then she pauses and starts thinking about what will be different. And then I say, then I ask her after, after she lists a lot of things that would actually be different because she knows that from her strategy work. Then I ask her, how are you going to qualify for the job three years from now? 
And she goes, he, she goes completely pale in their face. What? They, they look like themselves. But of course I have a job. No, because now it's a new job. Because three years from now, you have 650 people. You're out in four new countries. And right now you're only in the U.S., but then you're out in four other countries. Now it's an international CEO role. And then they start thinking about, well, but pipeline, it, it's not just about moving from one job to another. It's also about growing in your job and your job will actually change. Even though you're still a business leader, still a functional leader, the job is different three years from now. So you have to grow with the job. And, and this is what many people in, in the executives in smaller companies, they overlook. And it, it's also what causes the small companies challenges in growing because the executives forget that they have to change significant. But Steve, you put a lot of effort into, into contemplating on this. Uh, I have no trouble making the case that the leadership pipeline is more important to a small business than a big business. Part of it is I'm in a cushion. There are a lot of extra people around that might be able to pick up some slack. But the single biggest reason, and I know this from working with private equity, stepping sideways here, private equity companies have hired me to go in and look at something they want to buy or they just bought to find out if the leader can actually run it and what other things have to happen. And invariably, what you find is the leader of the company is working at the wrong level most of the time. So I've had maybe 60, 65 examples of that. So what small businesses need to, to get their mind around is as my company gets bigger, my job totally changes. And in the beginning, there's there's me and six people, you know, and then it's up to 20 people. So you got to put a layer underneath. That layer underneath doesn't get authority. Then it won't work. The, the, the leader is still managing all 22 people now instead of 20. <laughs> so the owner has to make the transition, has to understand there is such a thing and what the differences are, number one. Number two, there are many, many fewer leaders, therefore every single one's important, more important than they might be in a big. You know, if you go to a giant bank or IBM or someplace and there's a first-line leader who's not that good, there's a whole system around that people can lean on and use. Well, companies generally don't have it, and they frequently don't have an HR function. So the leaders are really doing the HR work. Having too narrow a focus on what a leader is supposed to do does the men, particularly as they want to retire and pass the business on to family or to somebody else. Now, I had one small business owner right here say, you know, I got the perfect guy to replace me. What do you think is perfect? Well, I've seen how he does the bills. They're really good. That's probably the single biggest reason not to move him up. You know, <laughs> this is nothing about structure, strategy, or planning, or hiring, or they may so a very detail-oriented person is what he's telling me. So generally, that's not, that's not such a good choice. So they have, they have more risk when they get their structure wrong. And most small companies organize in a way that's too small for the business. They still have practices, so it's like a plant being in a pot that's too small. Sooner or later, it'll, it'll break the, the roots will break the pot sooner or later. Well, it's a healthcare the hospitalist company that I was asked to work with, that the, the CEO was a, an emergency room doctor, and uh, he would treat people in the emergency room, but he had nobody to pass them to. There were any doctors in the hospitals. So the concept of hospitalists are 
doctors, the hospital hires. They work a four-day week for 12-hour days. They love it. And so he built a whole company to find those, get the hospitals and likely doctors to come together around the hospitals they did. But when he started, his mother-in-law did the marketing and his, his brother-in-law did the finance and he did all the sewing. And they did it all in his bedroom. How small businesses start. Usually it's a garage, not the bedroom. When I got with him, they were approaching $100 million. And he told me he's choking. I just can't. So I met with his people without him. And they said, one of our biggest problems is we have to sit here and wait for him to come and make a decision while he's out recruiting doctors and selling hospitals. Let them make the decisions. They run organizations. They're not going to lose. It's so, it's so close to him. Now it's a gigantic company. One little change freed up his whole life. Yeah, Steve, it's a great analogy about the plant not growing the pot. The other piece I wanted to touch on is you talked a little bit about the mistakes organizations have made implementing the leadership pipeline. And I wonder, Ken, if you could talk about some of the common mistakes that you're seeing and, and how they could be avoided. The first thing I would start with, the most common one, that's, that's companies over-engineering the model. What does that mean? Well, it means that they define way too many things around the model. So it just ends up confusing the leaders at each level. Uh, they might also uh, define more levels than they need instead of just and say leading others, leading others, leading leaders, leading leaders, because 90% of the population will fit into that. Uh, they start defining almost singular leadership roles because there's one executive that only fits into that and then uh, to accommodate that role. And, and that's kind of a misunderstanding. You have to look at the leadership pipeline and also paint it with the broader pencil. Uh, what am I supposed to do in everyday life? What am I held accountable for? What is the job to be done? But, but it's not about narrowing it down on each individual and so on. So this over-engineering thing, that, that's definitely one thing. The second biggest issue that you can run into, that's when you say, oh, leadership pipeline, that's super cool because we have a title structure. So let's define the job to be done around each title. But that's the opposite. The idea is it's not about titles. It's about the job to be done. So, so you simply turn it around and you end up with what will on a piece of paper look like a leadership pipeline, but for all practical purposes, it's not really using the nuts and bolts in the leadership pipeline. It's not going to do the job. But for many organizations, this is a tempting road because ah, we already have a title structure. Then it's also easy for people to understand what training programs you go to. You go to a VP, you go to a director program. But again, that's what caused all the challenges in the first place, uh, that they build things around the title structure. The idea in the leadership pipeline is it can solve the problems that the title structure creates. Our point is not that it's not good to have a title structure. It just serves a different purpose uh, in, in, in a company than the pipeline. So I think those are the two by far most common uh, mistakes. Yeah, I have another one. Um, and it's ignoring the corporate staff. I present the model to a company, all their business units. And the first people that confront me are like the corporate lawyers. You think I'm a leader of others all the way down at the bottom of this chart? No, we don't. Yeah, but that's why your charts are. You're way up here. You're making decisions that affect the whole company. You're not down there. You're up here. You're just on a tangent. You're not on the main uh, track. So well, those folks don't like it 
they can they make a lot of trouble. Finance people, HR people, HR in particular, the lawyers scream about it. This thing doesn't work. Why? Because I look like I'm at the bottom. So just just a way of not understanding what the model is trying to tell you. Expecting too much, this is going to solve all the problems. On day one, the bad leaders are still bad leaders. But if you don't do something about that, it doesn't matter what model you you got to make some hard decisions. You can't just say, we're going to do this now. With all the same people, you're all the same mistakes. These are very easy mistakes. Didn't anticipate them. Now we know they're there. And so we can talk to them. So what we're trying to do with the new book is sort of like uh, blaze a new trail. We got this bulldozer called Kent Johnson pushing his way through here. So people can jump on the bandwagon easier and with less concern. What I think is more interesting about the leadership pipeline piece, because I do feel like as a more experienced talent professional that I could implement and interpret it the right way with being simple, less complex, understanding the rules. But knowing that it does seem like a lot of people either overcomplicate it, right, misinterpret it, that this new edition of leadership pipeline is going to be a big hit and it's really I think a valuable resource for HR leaders and, and business leaders who are now thinking about doing this going forward. So appreciate you guys working on that. I'm excited about it. The last question for you, and this is the, signature, the question I ask in all my podcasts, so you get ready for it. And we'll, we'll take one at a time. And that is, what is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? The one word that HR has to really hang its wagon on is Productivity. You know, they've made this stupid mistake that finance didn't make, information technology didn't make. <clears throat> we don't call the guy who runs information technology the head of computers. They're just a tool for And we don't call the chief financial officer the chief money officer. Money is what they use to do things. Calling people the chief people officer means you don't understand anything about business. You can't be. Those people report to somebody else. They're not your responsibility, number one. And number two, what is it we use people for? We use them for productivity, right? You're supposed to get something done. And if you can do it in a way that makes them want to stay, so much the better. But until you start focusing on productivity, all this other shit doesn't matter. I mean, what you can do is make the work more meaningful, clearer, more likely to be achieved because you have the right delegation of authority and the application of resources. That's where HR needs to, to push their way in because nobody's working on that. That's why Agile and Case on all this other crap shows up and lasts until people realize it's just a thing. It's not the answer. The answer is, what do we do to make people productive? <clears throat> because people like to go home at night and say, look, what a great day I had. Everybody wants to be productive, get something done. Just a basic human need, I think. And, and that's the door that's to a room that's empty at the moment. <clears throat> the other thing is not being a partner. You're supposed to be a leader. You're supposed to lead this company through success. You're supposed to lead this company through salary planning. You're supposed to lead this company through recruiting. Lead the company through development. Nobody's trying to partner with you. You don't hear the marketing guy say, I'm a business partner for HR. Never say that. So somehow they get 
pulled in the wrong direction at a time when I think this is their time for HR. With all the technology changing the work itself, ways to know what that change is and what are we going to do about it. Perfect for HR. So chief productivity officer, not chief people officer. I right. love it, Steve. I love it. Kent, what about you? Yeah, I would say that uh, data-driven leadership development, impact measurement or training, those are the things I see in the future. Look, all functions, they are measuring all kinds of things. The only function not really measuring things these days relative to other functions, that's the HR function. Uh, so um, every time we are part of an RFP, uh, in the beginning we are asked, so how do you measure impact of your training? And of course, I start by saying, well, we can do it different ways. We can, of course, do it the way you normally do it. Uh, but maybe you can share with how are you doing it so far? Nothing. Uh, the thing is that there was a, a, okay, fair enough, it's a four or five years old, but still, it was a McKinsey quarterly I read that they asked 500 of the executives. Only 10% had any faith in the leadership development initiatives that they were taking inside their company. Uh, there was a similar fortune at that time, recent fortune analysis on the same. And also there, it was uh, less than 10% who actually believed that the leadership development initiatives taking place in the company would make any difference. This, is, I, I believe, is going to be a big deal. I have a hard time believing that 10 years from now, we can still run billions of dollars of initiatives across the world on leadership development, and then nobody asks, how do you demonstrate behavioral change, evidence-based behavioral change? So that's really what I'm looking for. What I see today is a vast majority of leadership development initiatives are based, selected based on the eyes that are looking at it. Yeah, this looks great. Yeah, but using the right word, this or that, or the right methodology. Super. What is the impact? That's the only question you need to ask. And that's where you start when you start uh, selecting vendors. That is, have you demonstrated impact consistently and how you're going to demonstrate impact with us? Not by building big, big, big expensive business cases, but just ongoing, like you do in production, like you do in marketing, like you do in all other functions. Now you do continuous improvement by consistently measuring impact of things. That, I think, will be the big deal for, for the HR function in the future. Also, taking into account, if we said, okay, this is maybe true about leadership development. Okay, what about all the executives today who are writing the checks? What were their experiences when they went on leadership development training? Poor, poor, poor. That was their experience. Kent, Steve, thank you for all you've done for our field. We're all excited to read the updated version of the Leadership Pipeline and see the influence the book's going to have for the next 20 years. Thanks again for being on the Future of HR podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Steve and Kent for sharing their insights on how to build a leadership-powered organization. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe, share our podcast with at least one other person, or even better, leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Jeffrey Pfeffer, who is a professor of organizational behavior at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, where he's taught since 1979. 
He's also the author or co-author of 16 books, including his latest, Seven Rules of Power, Surprising But True Advice on How to Get Things Done and Advance Your Career. I have been a big fan of Jeffrey's for a long time. And in my conversation with him, we're going to go deep on the rules of power, how to get it, how to keep it, and how to deal with those when you're not in power. This is an important conversation for all HR leaders and one you will not want to miss. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.